And we're live now. And um, so it's it's my incredible uh, pleasure and uh, and honor to to welcome Dr. Paul Tyson to the Darcy Common Commons podcast. And by way of introduction, uh, I'm going to oops, so I'm a little, struggling a little bit with the technology today. Apologies. Um, Dr. Paul Tyson is an integral thinker who works across theology, philosophy, and sociology. Uh, uh, metaphysics and epistemology understood not only philosophically and theoretically, but equally theologically and sociologically are his areas in, of interest. So you're getting a sense that he covers a lot. Uh, and, and I think the key, one of the, uh, the key phrases here is integral thinker. Uh, at present, he is a principal investigator and the project called co-coordinator for the After Science and Religion project run through IASH. Uh, and I wanted to also, um, we're going to focus a little bit today primarily on his book, uh, Seven Brief Lessons on Magic. Um, and uh, so without further ado, um, I want to welcome again, Dr. Tyson, if I can get the screen correct here, apologies. Where are we now? Oopsie, should be coming up. Ah, here we go. Okay, well, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Tyson, so much for, for joining us uh, today. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure, a pleasure that, to, uh, that you're here today. Lovely to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. Oh, no, no, really, it's, it's my pleasure and honor. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, um, if I may, uh, how do you define magic? What is magic? Okay, um, my, my little book, Seven Brief Lessons on Magic, which um, I, I'll just sort of... Please, yes, yes. Got a nice unicorn on the front. Yes, oh yes. <laughs> it's a slim little thing. It's designed for a transatlantic flight. <laughs> so yes. it's um, 20,000 words. Um, and it's a it's a it's my sort of response to another beautiful little book of the same size called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by yes. Carlo Rovelli, um, which is a a really very helpful read if you are interested in physics as a as a layman. <clears throat> so I thought it was a great book, except he really didn't understand um, anything theological or metaphysical. Uh, apart from that, it was fantastic. So I thought, well, I'll fill in the same same procedure and write about the things that uh, science can't see, which is how I define magic. So magic is, is anything that science can't see, love, meaning, purpose, um, intelligibility, uh, you know, thought, all these things that are invisible to our scientific gaze are what I'm calling magic. Muted my, myself there. Well, um, so all the things that the scientific gaze cannot see, which is a lot, right? I mean, the, the, there's a lot of stuff that the scientific gaze can't see. I mean, the assumption is in sort of mainstream lay circles that, well, uh, I mean, what, what's the meme, you know? It's science, right? Exclamation mark. Um, uh, that science kind of covers it all. And well, if we don't know something about something, well, I'm sure the scientists have figured it out. And but um, historians uh, uh, of, uh, of religion and, and otherwise, I mean, sort of intellectual histor historians realize people like yourself, 
know very well that um, there's so much that doesn't meet not only the naked eye, the, the, the human eye, but the, the eye of the, let's say in sort of simplistic terms, the, the microscope or the scientific mic microscope. What are some of these things that don't meet the eye, the scientific gaze as it were? And why don't they meet the scientific gaze? Why yes. can't they be seen? Very good. Um, so uh, I should have had a quick spin through this before our conversation because I've been writing other books. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how we go. Of course. No. Um, <coughs> pardon me. So science, we have this problem of a kind of reductive view of reality. So, um, so there's two extremes that I don't like. I don't like... Um, an anti-science view or a scientifically reductive view. Um, so things tend to sort of polarize one way or the other um, very unhelpfully. And I'm saying, well, you know, sure, read, read seven brief lessons on physics. You'll get a bit of great education on some of the really fascinating stuff going on in, in our understanding of the physical world. And it's, it's magical, right? It really is amazing. <laughs> um, however, it's, um, it's much broader than what that lens of analysis can see. And, and we tend to get stuck on the idea that um, scientists talk about real things and um, everybody else is just kind of making up their own opinions and beliefs and they don't really, you know, if you can't analyze it scientifically, then um, it doesn't really exist, okay? The problem with that is it generates this abstract idea of reductively physical reality as real reality and everything else is made up. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Bruno Latour's beautiful work. Um, a little bit, yes, yes, a tiny, a tiny bit, yes, yes. Yes, well, he sort of points out to this kind of polarization between nature and culture. So we, we, um, we think of nature as the stuff that, that science can understand. And if it's physically there and measurable, that's nature and everything else about meanings and purposes and values and metaphysics and beliefs and religion and relationships and all that other stuff, that's part of culture. However, culture is really just an effervescence of nature. It's not a real thing. Nature is the real thing. Culture is a construct over the top of nature. Yes. So, so this kind of view of reality where there's physical stuff is real and then culture constructs meanings um, is not how we experience reality. Yes. We experience the meanings as real. <laughs> and, and I'm saying, well, why don't we take that a bit more seriously? Why do we think, you know, physical things are real and qualitative things are made up? Mm. Maybe qualitative things aren't made up. Maybe, maybe, in fact, when you look at the complexity of physical things, qualitative things are realer. Right? Yes. Uh, the the further you go into trying to you know unify quantum mechanics and and um, uh, relativity, the harder you harder physical reality gets to get a grasp on. <laughs> so actually, what physical reality is a, a mystery, um, as much as as anything else. And so we live in a world where mystery is actually normal, and yeah. we shouldn't be scared of mystery. And we should allow mystery to speak to us in the same register of reality as we allow science to speak to us. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't mean you can prove in, rash, in, in sort of mathematical and reductively uh, sensory terms 
things that are qualitative in the way that you can for things that are physical, right? But I'm not just so many grams of carbon-based organic matter. <laughs> um, and then nobody accepting my university administration treats me like that. <laughs> so, um, the, um, so we actually, there's something, we experience the world through the lens of, of being people and the world itself being meaningful. And this is now outside the categories of our philosophy. Mm-hmm. Our philosophy, since Immanuel Kant, and we won't go sort of long digs into that, but, you know, we only deal with a phenomenal world. We only deal with the world as we know it. And what the world really is, we can't say. Um, but we can use sort of empirical and rational um, measures uh, to an- analyse our phenomena. But, um, you know, the world itself is between our ears. Mm. And, <laughs> and this, um, this is not how anyone actually lives. This is a, an abstract theoretical framework that our academic culture imposes on our knowledge discourse and says reality is about only reductively physical things as if only reductively physical things actually exist, you know, as if there's no real quality, right? Um, But there are much richer and deeper traditions than our present one, which treat um, the qualitative and the essential and the, um, and thought and being and meaning as essentially real. And, what, what, uh, are, what are some of these traditions that, that hmm. these things are unwieldy? And a couple of things. Sorry, before shifting to that, you used the word mystery earlier. And can you say what what do you understand by mystery? I mean, for me, as someone who uh, my background, uh, my original undergraduate degree was in English, and I'm kind of uh, uh, temperamentally more of an artist than anything else, since my hair and this kind of fancy scarf um so so the idea of mystery is something that is sort of existentially very real for me on a day-to-day basis as far as uh you know sort of trying to tap into and i don't want to be putting words into your mouth but at least from my point of view it's life is mysterious and magical and and sort of funny and scary and all those things um so way more again than uh, you know two plus two equals four or H two O is water and even I mean that doesn't H two O does not capture the whole reality of water itself. But what what is mystery as as far as you're concerned? Okay, well I think mystery is the natural way of looking at the world, mm. and every, every child does it, and you learn how not to do it. Okay, and um, when I, I have four. Four daughters. I'm a, oh, uh, a very rich man. <laughs> and I have a twelve-year-old son, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, and and every time the the you know the mystery of birth, it absolutely kind of blows your head, right? Mm-hmm. And then the 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 you know we walk around the park with our babies in our pushers, and everyone would stop and have a look at them, and the baby will look straight into their eyes, right? And you just have a soul soul on soul contact with it with a with a with the baby yes and can't explain it um but that's that's the natural mystery of the world and we sort of grow dull to it as we get mm. older and so uh, one of my favorite um passages of the christian scriptures is is uh, matthew 18 verse 3 where jesus says it should become like a little child mm. who can't enter the kingdom of heaven and and the the, the child is open to the wonder and yeah. um, 
richness of experience in a way that you have to make sure you don't lose right? yes. uh, or else something in you dies. I remember seeing this quote, I mean, to, to, to that very point, uh, some things you've just said, um, I remember seeing this quote, um, it was many years ago outside, uh, you know, one of the sort of chain bookstores in the UK, Waterstones, it was a quote from Mark Twain that said, um, I never let my schooling get, uh, I never let my schooling replace my education or something like that. Sometimes it's, very often it's through our very schooling and so-called education that we're we're, we're, we're taught to think in these very sort of, uh, you know, simplistic terms, ultimately superficial terms. I mean, you, you describe, I, mean, I really appreciate how you described the, the child, the, the, the young baby who looks back at the person peering into the pram, sort of soul, that the soul on soul contact. Like, what is that? Like, you can't just explain that empirically, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And it, it, any kind of uh, reductively instinctual explanation misses it. You know, mm. it's not that instincts aren't there. You know, but it's 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 just so much bigger than that. And uh, yes. so, so I think this is um, what what I really want to emphasise is is these things are natural. Mystery is natural and obvious, and um, there's something uh, we get formed by our culture and our education to um, pay less attention to those things as we get older and more attention to the things you can simply manipulate and control. Mm. And, and what's stunning about the vision of a child is it's Martin Buber is fantastic on this. Okay. So uh, any I and thou contact is a contact of love. Mm, okay? of so I remember my little, you know, three-year-old daughter when she was, she's 21 now, but you know, Oh. She would talk to her breakfast. <laughs> she, would, she would talk to her breakfast. Oh, wow. Flowers, you know, and the piece of toast was Uncle David. And, you know, like everything was kind of That's alive a, yeah. and relational, everything. And, yeah. and, and this is, um, uh, you, you can look at that as kind of, you know, a naive and uh, simplistic view of the world, or you can look at it as there, there is a profound insight that the child sees naturally before they're, in a sense, deformed <laughs> by our, our, our way of seeing the world to pay less attention to the things of love and more attention to the things of control. Mm. So, the, the, and of course, in the, in the, in the, in the, particularly in the Christian scriptures, which is connected to the uh, Jewish and the, and the Islamic scriptures, you know, the, the, the first form of knowledge is love. Mm. Um, and, uh, there's a very deep and rich wisdom tradition in this area that the children remind us of. And for some reason, we're meant to be all grown up and enlightened now and, mm -hmm. uh, and not pay much attention to that. Well, I'm saying, well, we need to pay attention to that. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, we, we, we're sort of uh, enculturated to, to yeah, become sort of very mechanical almost in how we interact with the world. And, and I, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you um, about, uh, you know, how, how children engage with the world. I, I think the mystical traditions in all the integral traditions have this very profound understanding in keeping with the biblical verse, uh, you quoted a little, a short while ago that we must ultimately, I remember hearing this um, 
really powerful Sufi uh, teaching story a number of years ago. There's the Sufi teacher who, uh, you know, had, as the story goes, had his students over uh, in the front room. And at one point he sort of got up, uh, left the room and came back with this young baby, this newborn baby. And he said to, to his students, the teacher said, uh, you must become like the baby. You must become like this baby. You know, basically just completely open and sort of unsullied uh, as far as, um, you know, perception of the world, uh, the famous, I mean, you know, cleansing the doors of perception or all that type of stuff, right? Um, but, yeah. um, sorry, what, were you going to say something? No, no, I just agreeing. Okay, no. So um, can you say a, a little bit about, uh, you have uh, four theories of magic, um, perhaps you could... Uh, Good idea, I'll get the book out to check up that I'm on yes. the same page. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, I, I, I love that, uh, you know, people, I mean, your output clearly is, is so extensive that you're reminding yourself, and that's beautiful, I love it. It's We should always be you know, creating new stuff and not be stuck. Uh, I mean, not that, I mean, your book's very fresh, clearly, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm writing in this, in this same area all the time, but uh, this area covers everything. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I've got, I, I try and say we've, we've got four different models of seeing nature. Yes. Um, which I call four different theories of magic. Mm. Um, so uh, the first one I've, I talk about is what I call the animist theory of magic, where um, everything is alive. Yes. And in a sense, this is quite common. This is quite similar to the child's view. Yes. Um, right. Um, <clears throat> however, <clears throat> in the animist sort of discourse uh, as a, a vision of nature, um, there's no... Um, transcendence the magic is in the world it's not beyond the world um so this magic in the world with no transcendence is um it, it's quite um in some ways compatible with lucretius it's kind of uh you know with the, the sort of ancient um uh, naturalism so and and people like carla Rovelli are very interested in this as well they they they're interested in uh the way in which the physical world is alive and um, mysterious, right? And uh, can't be simply boxed as sort of, you know, um, dead boxes. <laughs> uh, so, so that's one vision of, 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 of the world, one sort of theory of nature. Uh, and then I look at what I call a Platonist theory of magic, which is like the animist theory in that the world is full of um, mystery and uh, soul and transcendence reaches into the world, but is also above the world. So it's um, it's it's kind of kind of God. The world is an imminent world that is situated within a transcendent reality that is bigger than the imminent world. So that's quite different as a way of thinking about nature. Yes, and I. So these are both pre-modern views. Uh, then I talk about the two modern views. I've got two pre-moderns and two moderns. Yes. Um, so the third view I call the supernatural theory of magic. And this is where you have a two-story universe. You've got the natural and the supernatural, and they're kind of totally separate, And uh, and uh, which I think is a, 
as a kind of a dualist view and um, has all sorts of problems. Um, the biggest problem being that you don't need the second story, which leads to the fourth view, which is a, an anti-magical theory of magic. Uh, so all you have is the, the bottom story of the two-story view, that the world is just flat stuff. Um, so you've got these four different ways of thinking about the meaning of nature, which I call four different theories of magic. Um, and if we try and typically modern people, we try and understand what magic is through these last two theories. Um, and, um, and so I try and pull those two theories apart and get rid of them and say, well, really, we have to choose between the first two theories um, if we're going to be serious about the, the reality of our experiences of meaning and thought and intelligibility and love and goodness. So um, what would, I, I was, sorry, no, I was just going to, uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, what would you say to say perhaps critics who would say, well, the, the, uh, the, the theories that we apply today, they, um, they, cl they clearly work. You know, we get incredible technological results. We can, mine the earth for all its worth right uh, we can we can in the future we're going to be mining space itself and, and things like that we, it clearly works we look at everything that we've achieved what are you talking about you, you're just you, you have some thoroughly romanticized uh, understanding of things uh, and there's a reason why we don't think in these terms anymore because uh, it's from an evolutionary point of view we've just evolved past these childish ways of looking at the world what, what do you want to take us back to the stone age what are you doing and that's not my view but that could be that could be a criticism leveled uh, against what you're arguing potentially. right okay. um so i have a go at that from a number of angles um in this little book um i've been thinking a lot about emmanuel kant lately so i'll have a go from that angle at the moment please uh, so um the um What we tend to get, uh, let's start with, with Francis Bacon. Okay, so uh, back at what we call the scientific revolution, which is a 20th century term, <laughs> um, the, um, the, uh, someone like Francis Bacon was, was, was very motivated by a particular type of Christian theology. Mm. So he thought um, uh, that science was going to bring on the end of the world. Mm. Uh, and that um, the calling of humanity as made in the image of God was to be like God and have control over our sphere of the world of reality. Mm -hmm. And God gave us the earth to control. And when we had knowledge and the increase of knowledge and the movement of people all over the world, which is on the cover of his great instantiation, this prophecy from the book of Daniel, yes. um, um, this is uh, we're going to. This is an eschatological vision of science. This is where it starts. It's a Christian, a strangely Christian, <laughs> eschatological vision, right? So we're going to bring on. Uh, we're going to get the world under our control by mastering the world, and so he, he he wasn't interested in metaphysics or Aristotle. He was interested in what you could do. Mm. Um, so the modern scientific vision is is a very has a pragmatic sort of tweak to it right from the beginning, even though at the beginning that pragmatic tweak was embedded in theology. 
Okay. Yes. Um, but the incredible instrumental power of the mathematical experimental method, which the Royal Society famously championed, okay, um, it, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a philosophically naive to say that it's true because it works. Right? And no serious skeptic will let you get away with that. Sextus Empiricus wouldn't let you get away with that, right? But it does work, and that's impressive. <laughs> so, so we developed over time. We developed this interest in in you know, if if we can make it work, that's as good. That's as good as as truth. Okay, it, it never is. Truth and and use are not the same thing, right? Um, so. I can still navigate on a boat using um, uh, the, the 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 old the old vision of, of the, the the stars rotating around the Earth. Okay, I can still use a um, a geocentric model in my in my navigation, and it works. That doesn't make it true. Right? Right. Well, um, so, so if I may interject uh, very briefly, so uh, I mean, a potential challenge again could be well, my, my thing. My understanding is that a lot of uh, a lot of ideas about how the world works today um, are invariably shaped by powerful economic forces, right? So, so the the machine of capitalism is such that it's really only, it seems to me, primarily interested in what quote unquote works, in what makes money, and uh, I mean, I, I've. Uh, uh, my father's currently ill now, so it's so not too kind of uh, belittle him. But you know, factually speaking, I mean, this is my life experience growing up. And is you know, having him as my father, he's a very you know, he's a very accomplished businessman and so forth, and very that way oriented as far as money is concerned. And he, the number of times he said to me, you know, critically, well, you're all theory, you're all theory, right? And for him, he's a very "Quote unquote practical man, right? It's, it's. Um, I, I get. I mean, I, I get, perhaps you see see what I'm trying to say is uh, to, to many people. You mentioned that to um, a seasoned skeptic, shall we say, um, like the, to, uh, to, to from serious philosophical point of view, this the idea that just because it works makes it true would not hold water. However, from a capitalist point of view it almost doesn't matter what the philosopher thinks, right? Because he or she, primarily he, mostly men, is raking in the money as, as, as we speak, right? So, I mean, that was a bit of a long-winded interjection, but... Uh, oh, sure. I don't, I don't know if you know of Jacques Ellul's work. No, no. Um, amazing guy. He wrote this book, The Technological Society. It's a, it's a ripper. Oh, oh, Jacques Ellul. Yes, of course. Sorry, of course. Yeah, I misheard. Yeah, oh, incredible. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, please say more. Yes, the te technological society. Yes. Yeah. So, so he kind of takes up Marx's insight mm. um, that we've all become consumers in a way, and um, we're part of a machine. We become the the tools of our tools. Yes. Um, and uh, and and this points back to where we started with the kind of the reductive vision. If you have a reductive vision of reality, that actually is a theory. This is what I'm trying to say about these different theories of magic, these different yes. theories of nature. If you have a, a theory that the world is only physical stuff, that determines your practice. You can't say practice is never theoretical. 
you can't say theory is never practical. They're always together. And uh, if we if we think the world is simply about physical things that you can manipulate and control with mathematical experimental knowledge and and a bit of you know magical mathematics if you're into finance (laughs) (laughs) right um then um then you you, that that influences the way you behave in the world and that the influences the way you treat other people in the world and uh the risk of that is if you have an instrumental view of the world, you will think of yourself and other people as tools. Yes. And, um, and so the child insight, the insight of love and the insight of intrinsic value will be lost to you and you'll be spiritually crippled and dangerous as a result. Okay. So, so theory and practice are always together. Um, and, uh, the uh, I, I you know I, I love the modern age right I love the fact that we have got control over illnesses <laughs> it's a nice thing right well supposedly um, it's see apparently we have but then the past year has shown that apparently I mean who knows well, it, it's complex <laughs> it's complex as you know but nonetheless I'm really glad for penicillin right <laughs> uh, I don't have to die if I get a tooth infection <laughs> so um, there's some really nice benefits of things that work and so I, i'm not saying you know i'm 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 got one foot with bacon right mm. uh, part of the business of being human is trying to get a bit of control over your environment so you don't just become victims of chance and happenstance mm. and that, that that's a good part to that right but if that's the only thing um then you tend to become a machine mm. um, and you, you tend to lose your soul. So, so um, sure, I'm, I'm arguing for a bigger view of reality where, uh, but that does, where, where um, there are things more than just does it work. Right? Um, but it's not that I didn't, not that I have no interest in things that work. Things that work have their place, right? But it's, it's the problem if, if you have a view of nature where the only real things are things you can touch and control um, uh, instrumentally and, and, and by, you know, maths and experiment, um, then, then you miss um, dimensions of reality which are strikingly obvious. <laughs> right? And then you go through the world with this tunneled vision doing a lot of damage because you can't see past you know just making money um so uh this is why we need this bigger vision right it's it's damaging and it'll kill us all in the end a purely yeah. pragmatic view of the world is actually the worst thing for us practically <laughs> and, and it is killing us right already it's um no i, I really appreciate everything i just advertise another book i just finished sorry yes. about advertising. No, no, no. this is called theology and climate change yes, yes, yes. um it looks very closely at um, Bacon's idea. Uh, well, the the particular theology in early modernity. It's your newest book, is it? Yeah, yeah. My, oh, my amazing. Book. Oh, God bless you. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, I, incredible. Yeah, well, so, so yeah, please continue. Yes. So, so we, we don't appreciate that we have this dominate and control nature, this instrumental approach to nature for theological reasons. We don't appreciate that, right? And because we don't even think we've got a theology, you know, someone who's the 
executive shell or whatever, right? God bless them. Um, uh, they may not have any theology at all, but the idea that we have this sort of instrumental right to stand over nature and to do with it whatever we like for the sake of our needs at the time um, has a theological basis. Uh, going back to Bacon, going back to a particular view of the world, and um, and so those the fact that we're not consciously able to touch the theoretical frameworks that we are now practically embedded in makes it very hard for us to change mm. because we don't realize the relationship between theory and practice. Again, we just think like, I don't know if you must be familiar with Peter Berger's um, beautiful work on the social construction of reality. Yes. We, we take the reality we live in as real, yes. but it's not, it's, 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 um, it's a system of practice and belief that everyone around us accepts without question. Mm. Um, so unless we can be like the child, like, you know, children, again, they always ask why. And after the third time, you don't know the answer. Yes. <laughs> That's so profound. That's true. And, and what's a typical parental response when one doesn't know the answer? <laughs> Because we, I mean, human nature is typically not want to admit, especially vis-a-vis -vis a child, an adult doesn't want to admit that they don't know. So, what's uh, what, what's what's a good answer? And what's a what's a typical answer to the third well, well, question? The good answer, which will the good answer, which will give your child an awful lot of trouble, is I don't know. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it won't it won't give them personally trouble, but if they, um, uh are accustomed to not being fobbed off. When they go to school, they'll get into trouble. <laughs> so, so you don't need to know or I can't explain it to you. It's never a good answer. Yes, if you can't yes. give the child a reasonable answer, and then you should say, I don't know. Mm, you know, I, I'm reminded um, tra classically, traditionally, in, um, in the Islamic context, it, 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 used to be, and it's still said, but I think people very often forget this, that it uh, used to be said that to say la adli, literally to say I don't know, is half of all knowledge. Because um, that assumes that I have more to know. It's, it assumes, I mean, it's the sort of Socratic notion, right? Uh, yeah. of I don't know. But I mean, that's really the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. What, 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 what's the remedy? What are some of the remedies to these... Um, I mean, so many things that you've been saying are very profound. The, the, the idea that if we uh, only see our relationship to the world and to each other, even in sort of these uh, me mechanical, instrumentalized terms as to what works and what makes money, then we become soulless. Um, and this is, this is very, very important. And my sense is that only this type of language can only come from someone who has a theological perspective on things. Someone who has a perspective that is ultimately much more capacious than, than a very, as far as I'm concerned, a very superficial reading of, of, of reality. That, uh, so what are some of the solutions? Uh, can, you know, can some of these, I mean, as far as I can tell that I recently, uh, Donald Donald Rumsfeld uh, passed away a couple of, couple of days ago, I think. Uh, so they reported, and I mean, I can't help but feel looking at some of his pictures that, and considering all that he did, all the things that he 
made happen in the Middle East in highly destructive terms, that someone of his makeup is, is not thinking in a very theological sense, or maybe, I mean, unconsciously he's importing, I mean, we're all thinking in, in a theological sense, ultimately, if we take it far back enough, but it's interesting how the original motivations, I mean, you mentioned the example of uh, Bacon, similar, I mean, in a similar vein, uh, of course, famously, Descartes, when he originally sort of set out to, to formulate his formulations in, in, in the meditations, he was, ultimately interested in proving the existence of God, right? But then that part kind of got sloughed off and we just have the, the, the sort of bare framework of, of what he left us with. And, uh, but I mean, the question, so what is my question? Um, what, how, how do we remedy this situation? If people, if we have these zombies walking around, I, I mean, as a sort of observer of culture, um, uh, I can't help but wonder why this incredible fascination with zombies at the moment—they're they, pro popping up, popping up everywhere, movies all over the place. I mean, is it is it uh, from one point of view, a uh, sort of from one perspective, a serious um, commentary on where we are uh, societally, culturally, especially in the West, but not only? I just recently watched. Um, the brilliant director Jim Jarmusch's sort of treatment of, of this topic is called "The Dead Don't Die," and and he, he very clearly showed. Um, initially, when we we see these zombies sort of walking uh, almost aimlessly and very slowly, drugged, looking—I mean, you know—almost like drugged-up people. Um, they different zombies were citing different things like what one one said fashion one would be mumbling fashion another would be mumbling this that and the other sort of consumer stuff so uh, anyway what's the remedy to this soullessness okay um i would like to have another go at kant but use harry potter here as well yes <laughs> so um so it's it's fascinating that even though and we've got a great economics professor here in, in uh, at, at Queensland who's written a book on zombie economics, which is a, which is a ripper, how bad ideas just don't die <laughs> in economics. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, we have persuaded ourselves that only the things you can see and touch are real. And um, as a result, we have developed this cultural blindness to the things that make our lives meaningful um and um and there's this huge hunger like uh, uh I, I really like philosophy and I, I remember when i was a young man i had to read language truth and logic by um aj air and uh it, it's a ridiculously boring piece of <laughs> it's very smart okay uh, but it was a huge seller i think it sold 20 million copies or something okay 20 million copies is absolutely enormous for philosophy but 500 million copies of harry potter i mean you know there's no comparison people are interested in meaning and they can only get it through fantasy right our concepts of the real world don't allow you to have a view of meaning so people are hungry for fantasy. And sociologically, this is a really interesting phenomena, you know? So, um, so, so we know the world is meaningful. Our life 
is we're unable to actually live as if things aren't meaningful, <laughs> uh, as if we don't really have a soul, as if we're not really thinking, as if um, meaning and value and purpose don't matter. We're not actually able to live like that. But theoretically, we think like that. And it, it comes back to Kant. So I'll, I'll have a quick attempt to see if I can crack Kant for you, if, if you're okay with that. Okay, I've, I can't hear you. You must be muted again. But <laughs> So, yeah, no, please, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I'm, as I'm sort of toggling back and forth, I'm muting myself. No, please go ahead. Yes, thank you. Yes. So I have a quick go at Kant. So, so um, we have this problem in the 18th century where the rationalists um, – can do wonderful a priori thinking uh, where one plus one always equals two. The problem with that is you can't get it ever to connect with the world of physical experience because it's a tautological self-defined rational system inside your head. Okay. And on the other hand, we've got Hume um, saying um, you can never move from uh, a posteriori experience to a universal rational system. The two don't follow. The fact that the pencil goes down when I drop it, I can only tell after I've dropped it. Uh, you know, probabilistically, I can say it's likely to happen, right? but I can't prove that it will happen on the basis of experience. So, so Kant solves the, the problem of rationalism being incompatible with empiricism by getting rid of reality. Okay, it's fantastic. Okay, it, it was such a neat answer. Right? So, so we're not interested in what the real world happens. We're only interested in how we perceive the world, and in, in the way we perceive the world, our reason structures our experience, and our experience is con uh, is connected with um, we 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 sensory ex construct an experiential world in our head, and so. Let's just deal with that world in our head of phenomena and not worry about the noumena anymore. And this is, metaphysics is cut out and it never comes back in Western philosophy after that point. And um, so, so we no longer believe in the real as outside of the constructive world of our consciousness. And, um, and so if we construct our consciousness to be reductively pragmatic, that's reality to us. Right? Uh, and and we, we, we cut ourselves off from the obvious porosity of transcendence into ordinary life, which is everywhere and all about you. And we couldn't have a conversation if we weren't two thinking beings communicating, right? Which is not empirically or rationally explainable. <laughs> and so, so ridiculously empiric, you know, intelligent beings come up with the theory that they don't really exist. <laughs> well, I, I, to, to that great point, I remember, oh, goodness, I forget his, uh, I think it was Stanley Cavell who, who made this point vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, um, you know, thinking through a Cartesian understanding of the self. He said, based on uh, that understanding of, of the self, it, the fact that two people, yourself and myself, for example, can be having a conversation, understand each other and connect, is completely, it doesn't, it can't be explained. It cannot yes. be explained, yes. We, we have a fundamental egotism problem, mm. um, a solipsist problem that, that Hume understood very well, mm. and it hasn't gone away. We, we, uh, we, our concept of our high culture of philosophy 
has just chopped out metaphysics. Yes. And, um, and uh, there, are, there are brilliant people like William Desmond. I don't know if you uh, know William's work and David Schindler. There, there are brilliant people who are saying, well, Kant, uh, Kant's move never really actually worked. <laughs> it's just a convenient trick <laughs> and um the if you pay attention to the life that you actually live if you go down to the park with your baby and watch soul on soul contact between two people right then that's the real world and and if your theory doesn't fit that your theory's wrong <laughs> yes uh, so it, it's it's not that difficult but we have this um, the thing we like about getting rid of noumena and transcendence is that we 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 decide the rules now. Okay, um, uh, it's it, kind of back to the Garden of Eden. We shall be as God, right? It's yes. it's up to us how the world is, and if I'm rich and powerful and I want to set it up to perpetuate my own power, yes. um, that is the world. And uh, we don't have any, our wisdom traditions have been so eroded by our knowledge traditions mm. that um, we form our children to accept that really reductive view of reality. Mm. And so, so now what really matters is that you make a lot of money and you do well in life, right? Yes. Yes. Rather than that you actually discover some sort of uh, divine meaning to life who cares <laughs> so, it's, a crime. so it's honestly a crime how how children are deformed right they, they, they come into this world for as as you full of wonder and curiosity and and, a, and, and an innate sense and appreciation of beauty and through our schooling, through our parenting and, and what have you, we just turn them eventually. And it's, it's almost a miracle that people still have a sense of, 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 of somehow, some people, not, often, not always, but somehow we maintain nevertheless an appreciation of the mysterious. Um, it's, it's, it's really criminal. Um, and, you know, what, the, the very notion of success, you know, the, the notion that to be materially successful is, is, is what it means to be successful. However, to have no appreciation next to no appreciation of transcendent dimensions, uh, dimensions that ultimately uh, enrich us in the deepest sense, to have no sense of that at all is, is apparently not a problem. That, that's really criminal. And, and I can't help sort of uh, make use of or resort to traditionally theological language in, in saying that it's demonic. I, I, I feel that it's, it's actually, it's I mean, it's, it, it's certainly not godly. So if it's not godly, if it's the inverse of godly, I can't help but feel it's demonic. Not to say that um, these philosophers, that some of these philosophers you've been citing were, were demonic, but uh, you know, it's, 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 you, you mentioned quite powerfully that we live in a world where um, uh, knowledge has triumphed over wisdom, right? It's, it's not, it's not a, it's very often people will say, right, the kind of meme as it were is, um, let's say vis-a-vis -vis racism or something like that, right? Is, oh, it's just a problem of ignorance. You know, people just don't 
have better knowledge, they're ignorant. Uh, I, I, I would contend, in general, that the awful, um, some of the awful realities of the world today that, that we see around us, whether it's uh, the degradation of the natural world, I mean, the, you know, to the point of, you know, God knows if we can reverse things, um, to, to all sorts of uh, huge challenges. It's not from a lack of intelligence, right? I mean, it's, it's probably we have too much intelligence, but not enough wisdom. Uh, to, yes. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you, you've, you're familiar with Max Weber's work. Um, that, yes, yes. The, uh, the, uh, he talks about the sort of the iron cage of um, bureaucratic rationality. Um, so, so, you know, having instrumental systems, um, having instrumental systems can be valuable, right? Having bureaucratic structures can be, can be great, but, um, it has this tendency to sort of, um, perpetuate order and control, um, to a point where there is no human freedom. <laughs> um, and um, it's not just you know government organizations something like you know uh, google and facebook can do this, right? yeah. Yeah. And in, and, in some ways they some may argue that they're even more powerful than so they are amazing you, you know uh, shoshana zuboff's latest book on oh, surveillance capitalism it's, oh my it's goodness stuff right yeah. So this is the iron, this is Weber's iron cage taken to a whole nother level. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so we have the I, I, I think demonic is the right word. Um we have we have established sort of orders of power um that control us that have gotten away from us and taken on their own life. Yes. Um yes. and uh, there's a beautiful book by Shannon Ross um called Gifts Glittering and Poisoned. Uh which um, looks just at, looks through the eyes of Augustine mm. at the entertainment culture and the, the, the spectacle culture of the, of the modern age yes, um, and, and says, well, you know, the demonic is the category we need to think about here. Mm. Uh, so, so there's nothing, you know, um, I'm not impressed by um, uh you know, finding devils under every chair. <laughs> right? However, the demonic is a category we need to take more seriously, as is the angelic. Yes. Um, and, um, and, and, and I'm talking seriously sociologically. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, there, there is, there's interesting literature. Um, the French are really good at this sort of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, people like Ricoeur and, and, um, uh, I can't remember his name, but it starts with C, who did a, a look at bureaucracy and how bureaucracies take on their own life. Mm -hmm. They develop their own sort of energies and powers and structures. And uh, Habermas is great on this too. Okay, so, mm -hmm. so, and, and Zygmunt Bauman, so I'm just going to sprout these sociology people around here a bit. So exactly. we, 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 get the, um, we get the individual as an atom and the large organization, be it uh, a commercial organization or a government. And uh, the individual is like an atom of water and the channels are created by these large powers and you just sort of flow through. 
right? This is liquid modernity. Um, the only thing that gives resistance to these are what Habermas calls middle order institutions, church, community, village, school, these sort of human scaled institutions that are bigger than the individual, but smaller than an impersonal bureaucracy of or a large business. And, and they are just getting decimated in our world. And the result is there is no, there is no refuge for children. So, so all my kids, my, my, um, my youngest is 13, right? So, um, but my kids have grown up with the iPhone. They've grown up with the internet in their pocket 24 seven, right? And that makes them totally vulnerable to um, having continuous commercial forces in their pocket, in their brain, um, controlling their social relations in a way that I never grew up with. And there are no middle order community organizations to protect them from whatever they're being channeled towards. Mm. And they're, they're supposedly having these enormous freedoms, right? Mm. But it's, it's demonic. They are just become, they, everything Google and Facebook do is algorithmically designed to make someone some money. <laughs> so, so they're just so many pounds of, um, you know, so many grams of money. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. And uh, so it's, it's profoundly dehumanizing and it's totally changing. You know, there's, there's good sides to all this stuff, but there's very dangerous sides to this. And um, I think there's some very profoundly dangerous sides to this. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I mean, uh, in keeping with the, I mean, everything you just said about the, um, the nature of these technologies and seeing us as, and they call it the attention economy now, right? So it's uh, how, how can they monetize our attention and, I mean, all the data that's being generated um, every second, right? Insane amounts of data. They, they, I mean, they, these companies don't even know what they're going to do with them. But what they do know is that it can be monetized down the line. So it's all being stored. And, um, and, and, and another dimension, and not unrelated, um, because sex sells, right? And sex captivates and sex enthralls. The, the, the hypersexualization of, of, um, uh, of society as a result of these technologies, right? Um, you know, I, I, in many ways, I can't help but feel that society at large is going through a, has been going through for some time, a pornographication, right? Um, the, the, the nature in which, um, you know, these, these technologies work, it's, um, what's the, the famous, um, uh, media theorist, I'm blanking right now, the, the uh, very, uh, Marshall McLuhan, um, I mean, the, right, uh, the, um, famously said, uh, uh, anyway, but he, he makes the point that vis-a-vis uh, -vis sports, uh, sports games, when cameras were introduced to the field, it completely changed the nature of, of the game itself because all of a sudden sports men primarily then they were or entirely then they were um playing for the camera it sort of opened them up in certain ways and and marshall McLuhan was no prude but um i think he had some commentary on on, on, on the, the impact of sex but sort of extend expanding that analysis of how sports was opened up and changed by the very the presence of the cam the camera the gaze of the lens I mean, I can't help but feel how our very sex lives are entirely being transformed. This very historically understood, very 
private um, sort of activity has, has is completely it's become a performance and 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 sometimes very very dangerous ways where. Now, I think they recently did a study uh, in the UK, uh, which was published uh, looking at uh, the, 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 the sex lives, and not in quotation marks, the, the very real sex lives of school kids and how uh, toxic it is and how young girls, uh, I mean, by their fellow uh, students, boys are, are constantly being asked for, for, for you know, uh, nude pictures and things like that so so the, the, these technologies are very scary and and mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm no <laughs> you know one has to for some reason resort i don't know i feel sometimes i have to resort to these uh what's the word okay excuse me my, my brains are functioning as, as well as it should but uh, uh you know these apologies and say you know i'm no prude but you know but i we have to be objective or as 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 sort of objective as possible and say calling you know, a spade a spade, and this spade is doing a lot of damage right now, as well as facilitating a lot of things as well. Yeah, yeah, and and this is another illustration of this um, flattening of the transcendent horizon, okay? So uh, we've lost a concept like marriage as a sacrament. Mm. Um, We've lost lost the concept of um, a transcendent meaning to human sexuality, and so it all becomes transactional yeah. and um, simply about consent. Yeah. And uh, so we, we construct, no, I'm not saying not having, I'm not saying sex without consent is good, right? But the, the, we, we construct, we're incredibly lost. So we, in, in Australia, we've had um, uh, these scandals in the Parliament House this, this um, past year. And uh, the prime minister has finally decided that, you know, something has to be done and women have to be treated better in parliament. Right. Um, But the, um, so everything's swinging to, to the side where women have to do everything. You have to be women to get the job and, um, and everything is all about consent. Um, And, um, but again, it's a response that has no transcendent concept of the meaning of sexuality. And it presupposes complete constructivism mm. um, in, in something we all know is, is more complex than construction. It's not that there's no, you know, there's a lot of social construction in, in sexual norms, right? But um, the thing itself has a sacred reality that is, Otherwise, otherwise, you know, everyone should be wankers. I mean, this is something we tangibly experience, like looking into the child of an eye, you know. You know there's something meaningful about physical intimacy. Mm. Uh, it's not simply made up, but we don't have language for it anymore. We don't have the metaphysical reaching into the imminent. We don't have the porosity of the physical to the spiritual in our mind and in our language. And so when we try and fix a problem, we fix it within this prison, this pre-existing limited reductionist view and make it even worse in a different way. (laughs) So, yeah. It's tragic. tragic. And uh, it's great. 
very scary. Like, what, uh, yeah, I really worry for, for my 12-year-old son. I mean, you know, he's doing well. He lives in the States and, you know, he's, 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 he's a smart, bright kid. But I, I worry, I can't help but worry as a parent. Like, what kind of world is he growing into? And, and, and yeah. growing, uh, taking uh, as a given that these are the norms because the, this is how it's been presented to him and this is good. Um, because we're all being exposed to to, to ideas, uh, of, of, say about sexuality. Yeah, or what like we've got this enormous contradiction where, um, you know, you, women must be treated properly, and of course they must, right? But it's everyone's right to be as pornographic about everything as they feel like. <laughs> right, which is a deep contradiction, and absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, why don't we get, if we're concerned about sexual um, respect for women, why don't we outlaw pornography? Oh, but you can't do that. <laughs> well, again, I mean, I, again, I'm reminded uh, of the, theological term demonic it's a it's 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 a, it's it's you know it strikes me as a demonic sleight of hand you know it's yes, yes. it's about uh you know it's about women's rights therefore a woman can and yes yes you know a, a woman can and a man can and should be feel free to do with their bodies as they see fit but then, I mean, again, we, we lose sight of the, shall we say, the Foucauldian reading of, 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 of things, how the norms are always, uh, already always, right, constructed by some very co complex institutions. And so what we, how we view the world, we assume to be, oh, this is of my free choice that I am, understanding the world to be a certain way, how interpersonal relations are supposed to be sexual relations and things like that. But how have I been programmed to think this way, right? And the programming is incessant, right? The, the advertising is incessant in the movies that there's, you know, it's, um, th there is a message around, uh, there's a messaging happening around sex, which, Someone, you know, a critic might say, well, you're, you just sound like an old fogey now. You're old, you know, that's why you're thinking like this. But but one just has to have a bit more of a, a, a historical lens about things, right? Uh, which increasingly it seems we don't have anymore. To, to, but to, we have to the same thing with food. It's it's amazing, you know, that like food has become, I don't know, cooking shows <laughs> are the kind of the new pornography. <laughs> well, well, they even call it... Um, they, there's even even a term right for taking pictures of one's food, like food porn, right? <laughs> they literally call it that. Yes, and so so okay. we we. But the, the thing is, we're trying to find meaning in our appetites. Yes. Okay. We, yes. We're reaching for the magical through our appetites, and with good reason. Like music, we're reaching through sensory experience to to transcendence to mystery, right? But we just we've lost the words for this. We're all um, we're all made dumb about what we're searching for, and so we'll be satisfied with anything. <laughs> um, we're, so. we're satisfied with crumbs, and 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 to your point, which again, I mean, is all extremely profound points uh, around the 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 question of um, you know how you put it that which we're seeking deeper meaning through our appetites. I'm reminded of um, 
very, very uh, influential um, historically um, Islamic uh, metaphysician, Sufi, uh, Imam Ghazali, his sort of um, massive uh, magnum opus, uh, the revival of the religious sciences. There's one volume uh, dedicated uh, to the, it's called the breaking of the two desires. And the two desires are that of the stomach and the genitals, right? So the idea being, if we can, be in control of these two desires. These are very fundamental desires, right? The need to, I mean, after after the need to breathe, right? Uh, and, and drink water, like food is a fundamental desire as is a desire to procreate. If those desires are in, con- if we're in control of those desires, then we can do more interesting things. And so, and, and you know, I can't help but reflect that the disciplinary to use that kind of Foucauldian term again, the, the disciplinary um, regimes in all the integral traditions, the wisdom traditions, they in some shape or form revolve around how we, our relationship to food and our relationship to sex. And I don't think that's accidental. I mean, a, a sort of modern secular uh, critic may say, well, you know, this is because they want to control you. Yes, they want to control us, but to what end? Maybe controlling us on a, on a horizontal level to, to attain sort of vertical freedom. That would be the, the say, traditional understanding of, of things. But now where uh, it's, I mean, what was the old, the ancient Roman ploy, right? Bread and circus, right? It's it's uh, bread, bread and circus and, and, and now porn, right? It's like, this is, this is the ultimate again. I mean, I, I'm sorry to keep using, harping on the word demonic today, but... Like, I can't help but feel that this is the ultimate demonic ploy of control. It's like complete, you know, sex on tap, food on tap. Like, why are we ever going to think for ourselves, right? Uh, we- it's, it's the kingdom of pigs that uh, Plato talked about. You know? huh. so, yeah. So you just, we, if, if we are slaves to our appetites, we are totally controllable. Yes, yes. 100%. We, we're completely docile, right? And unless you have some control over your appetites, you don't have any real choice in your actions. Yes. And, and we'd be conditioned to not have choice in our actions through these wonderful conditioning saturations um, to of the consumer world. Yes, yes. And, and like you say, it's not spiritually neutral. <laughs> no, nothing it, it has a spiritually deforming aim the the controlling conditions of our of our sensory experience in the in the consumer world yes well so like I, I say, all, all the wisdom traditions have, have, have got you know big on on self-control and um big on not being a slave to your appetites and this is kind of considered fogey and and uh you know sort of uh authoritarian body hating and all that sort of stuff but not at all you can't enjoy your body unless you're in control of it 100 percent, 100 percent um but what's the how do we get out of this morass what's the <laughs> what, what are some of the solutions um, um well i what i try and say in my little book on magic is that um start at home Okay, uh, the the magical world is as close as the next person you talk to. 
<laughs> the, just, just being aware of mystery and beauty in ordinary life is, is, is a kind of an act of revolt against the reductive consumerism, which turns us into tools, the tools of our tools. Um, so keeping the child alive, keeping an awareness of the um, inbreaking into our world of things above us that make the world meaningful, rather than only thinking what can we have mastery over. Um, this is this is a uh, we all do it to some extent, right? But we should try and do that more, and be less reduced to masters of an instrumental reductiveness uh, in our daily lives. So this is kind of things I try and say. This is this is where where you should go with magic. Uh, well, that's beautiful. And so in, in practical terms, uh, I mean, you mentioned already in practical terms, but could you give some examples, right? The, the human experience, I mean, I can't help but, you know, again, I can't help but reflect that um, a lot of these companies, um, such as Facebook and Google, but especially Facebook in this instance, um, they... And they're master, they've, they're master psychologists. They know very profoundly, yeah. I mean, in, in, in really scary ways, how the, the human, how we function as, 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 as species, as individuals and as collectives. And, and they're really kind of mining some of our, um, uh, not just lower instincts, but in many cases, lower instincts, but also a deep, uh, 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 desire for connection right i mean this is a very human uh and i I would say a sacred desire that we have for deep intimacy deep connection not in some superficial sense and so hence a company like facebook is as successful as it is i think um so so when we interact with each other just in in um what kind of intentionality do we do we bring to to day-to-day interactions would you say okay okay exactly and 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 like you like you point out um the technologies that are very powerful are the uh, are the ones that connect to the higher aspects of our nature right so communication is fundamental to our nature right so the technologies that promise um uh, enhanced communication uh, we are suckers for <laughs> okay uh, now so my bit of resistance is to not have a mobile phone um, well that's amazing I love and, it yeah and I, I have three academic friends I know who also do this and we're kind of a little sort of bizarre cult <laughs> that's amazing I mean I, the fact that you can do that I am so uh it's, it's almost illegal it's almost illegal now it's almost, yeah. it's almost a crime right <laughs> yeah. yeah I can't go to a coffee shop unless somebody else bleeps me in with their phone <laughs> and I'm their dependent <laughs> oh yeah oh right oh my goodness COVID thing right so oh my um, god that's wow that's fascinating and we could just i mean we could just spend a lot of time just unpacking that itself but that's yeah please continue so there are micro resistance you can do which are actually enormously Mm. powerful Mm. um and uh 
so so we don't have a TV in our house. We've never had one. Um, yes. And uh, so, so we do watch DV together, DVD together on a Friday night. So we, yes. it's not like we don't have any entertainment, but um, we, we want to make sure that when we're together as a family, we're together as a family. And my wife is an amazing cook, so that helps a lot. Mm. <laughs> um, I was okay before I got married, but then, you know, I, I bow to superior skill. <laughs> um, so the, the and, and the micro, like we say, grace, these things are actually um, things that if you, if you have micro practices that keep reminding you on a practical, on, on, a, on an ordinary common base way of transcendence and of, of, um, relationality and of meaning that is not commercial mm. these are major acts of resistance in our day and age and they're very hard to keep up <laughs> right um, so you have to intentionally try to do them um, mm. you know we have family devotions as a family so we, we have these things we do as part of our routine that we try and build into our routine um, yes. that um, keep us practically embedded in trying to live with a horizon a transcendent horizon before god um and uh you don't get any help with this by the modern lifestyle <laughs> uh, and and people of like mind need to kind of band together in those uh, habermasian middle order categories to have any chance at all um and it's fascinating i have uh, I remember talking to um, Ray Gingrich, a um, Anabaptist theologian from uh, a Mennonite theologian, I think from uh, from uh, Pennsylvania or somewhere, um, and uh, he was saying how, like, you know, people who are serious pacifists um, and and trying to live their lives without being implicated in violence, mm -hmm. okay. Um, uh, can't do it by themselves because everything about our way of life is violent. Um, and so you have to kind of clump together. Um, but once you clump together, then you're big enough to be vomited out. <laughs> but otherwise you're being digested, right? <laughs> so, yeah. No, I so micro practices are much bigger than you think. Yeah. Well, that's very powerful. That's very powerful, powerfully put and very um, heartening because very often, I mean, I certainly go through moments of thinking, what can I do? Like, uh, what can one individual do? What can a few people even working together do? I mean, I also believe a lot can be done, but just the, the, the micro practices thinking, well, what does my prayer, well, what... Uh, what impact does that have? But I think being, uh, I can't help but feel honestly that in keeping with a lot of things you just said, that being religious in some shape or form today is a huge revolutionary act in this highly materialistic, um, superficial world that we're living in. This... Uh, well, it's not even materialistic in, in the in the good old sense, right? It's it's all it's it's all digital now. So it's not even it's, it's, not even, it's all virtual, right? It's not even physical. 
we've attained platonic heaven of some sort. And, <laughs> right. Without, without uh, talking, that's an insult to Plato, but you know. <laughs> well, that, I know. It's really yeah. dark. That's really, I mean, God knows, again, as a sort of consumer of uh, popular culture and, you know, as, as, as trying to decipher, you know, maybe where things are going. And this is kind of an old reference point at this, at this stage, right? The, 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 uh, the Matrix movie or the trilogy, right? Um, I can't help but feel that that's where we're heading. I mean, it's not going to be exactly like that, but maybe the, the Wachowskis were, were onto something when they, they had that kind of nightmarish vision of where things are going, where we're all sort of jacked we in. Are, we are living in a prison for our mind. Yes, um, yes. And, and, uh, and we have minders. <laughs> we have minders. Can you say a little bit more about that, please? Oh, well, um, okay, so the, you, I, I really recommend this beautiful book by Shannon Ross called Gifts Glittering and Poisoned, which, which takes Augustine's view of the spectacle culture of his day, which was the, um, uh, the arena, okay, yeah. and says, well, um, they were very explicit. These were demons, right? Wow. Uh, you, had them, you had them in there. And uh, the whole, so so in classical Greek thinking, a, a, a daemon is a middle order divine being. Mm. So there's mortals at the bottom. Then there's sort of, you know, the, the gods that are kind of um, kind of like mortals but immortal. You know, they've got all the same greeds and sins and vices. And, <laughs> and then you have kind of a high divinity above that. So the, the daemons are kind of middle orders and they can be connected with good or bad things in classical thinking mm. it's, it's in christian thinking that they become demons in the way mm. uh, of, of evil beings okay and famously uh, socrates speaks of his daemon right in exactly. sort of, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah so yeah, the, the scripts are really they're really really into this idea of um uh the like the rhapsode when he's reciting homer is has a muse he's possessed and mm. and you're taken to um by imagination and words to this, you participate in this thing, right? Yes. Um, so they, the, the beautiful little book by um, E.R. Dodds, The Greeks and the Irrational, mm. um, is, is fantastic. They had a really windows open oh, concept yes. of the way the spiritual integrates with the physical. Um, um, so in, in, in the Greco-Roman world, you, you had the gods in the, in you would have your procession from a temple to the arena and the gods would be integral in everything that happened in the arena. And the idea was the audience gets lifted above the mortals in the, their contest and they are put in a demonic position. Okay. So, so the audience participates in this. We're above the contest of life and death and there they are down there below us. Um, and, uh, and somehow the crowd has this, the, uh, daemonic energy uh, that makes the whole thing significant for the actors as well, right? Um, and uh, so, so Shannon takes this idea and he says, "Well, look, we've got this spectacle culture too, like big time, <laughs> and we're doing the same thing. We're lifting ourselves up above the, you know, the the mortal actors. Like, and I see this in Australia. We love footy." <laughs> yes, and it's the spectator thing, you know. 
there they are down there, those mortals struggling, and everything's a contest, and we love a contest, right? It's an agonistic view of the world, and we're we're watching the fight and we're barracking, but we're above it, right? So they're they're like in the arena, they're doing our thing for us. Um, so um, I'm, I've got a bit off track. Where was I going with this, Hassan? <laughs> um, so we're talking about uh, the demons. The um, oh goodness, I've. I've lost the thread as well. <laughs> that's that's telling. No, there was a good point in there about contemporary. Um, uh, right. So, so about the technology, the technology. Oh, the Matrix, and uh, you, you mentioned the reference that's of the prison for our mind. The prison for our mind. Yes. How we have minders. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. So, so um, the Greco-Roman world was very explicit about. Um, uh, the you know spiritual powers being integral with physical things, and so a um, a cohort of soldiers was at once just a bunch of men, but also a spiritual entity. Mm. Um, and uh, when Saint Paul talks about principalities and powers, these are not simply out there; they're part of the structure of and social structure social political structure of the culture in which they live okay mm -hmm. so there's a there's an integral like, conception of these things and the basic principle is worship mm -hmm. okay so <clears throat> augustine and his way shannon books great okay that augustine says okay the city of god is different from the city of man because the first principle of the city of man is the love of self mm -hmm. Self-worship is the principle of the city of man, and it's it, through that through that a wrong through that idolatry, it becomes subject to demonic powers, and um, the demonic powers are energized in a way which will destroy um, the true human flourishing. Because true human flourishing comes to those who worship God first and love God as. Uh, Love, love God and then love their neighbours themselves. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbours yourself. This is the first principle of worship. You do that, you get human flourishing. If you make the glory of the self, the, the, the basic principle of worship of a society, it degenerates into a, a war of all against all and a, a struggle to be in the elite victor culture and uh, violence and power are the dominant mode. Right, so that's the direction we're going in, oh, and course, yes. you can see how the what's happened is this huge sort of shift in work worship culture in Western civilization over the past two hundred years from a, a culture strongly, in, you know, there was we're always been sinners, right? <laughs> right? but nonetheless strongly embedded in a theological framework where justice was meant to be. Um, mediated from God to human institutions and they were meant to be governed by divine revelation uh, in order to produce a just and fair society for all. Whether they did that or not is another question, but like that was what they were aspiring towards, okay? And we've thrown that out and now the self and elites are the the center of worship 
and we have all these icons and these mm. idols who we worship, right? And they are expressions. They so, are expressions of our own aspirations. Right. Um, our own like, aspirations, right? Just like the Athenian gods, just like the you know, just like the gods of Greece. Uh, uh, the uh, Athena is Athens writ large, mm. right? So it's kind of the principle of self-worship is governing our. So, so the most powerful dynamic in any society is spiritual is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Um, and it's not spiritual out there in the sky. It's spiritual in socio-political, cultural dynamics of power. Yes. yes. And so you get the worship right, you'll have human flourishing. You get the worship wrong, as it said in the book of Leviticus, I put before you life and death. Choose this day life. And life is the first two commandments. And instead we pursue love of the self as the basic idolatry and we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, That's so profound. I really, really appreciate that so much. That, yeah, I mean, it's no matter what, um, how society is, um, uh, is playing out, that, that there's a profound spiritual dimension to it. And it's about getting the spirituality, getting the worship right. Uh, yes. That's very, very profound. And, and that's very in keeping with uh, some of my intuitions on, uh, I mean, we can't do away, we, we in theory have done away with religion, right? Uh, we're, we're supposedly post-religious in many ways, but I, I can't help but feel that we, we are so religious and so in, in maybe not in, in, a, in a traditional sense, but so religious in another sense. And ultimately, the ultimate idol, of course, is the idol of the self, which um, that doesn't go away so easily. And, and it literally takes, right, from a, a traditional religious spiritual point of view, it takes a lifetime of work to, to even begin to approach uh sort of discarding that. And, but if, if we live in a world where that is of primary um, value, then, then how are, are we ever to get away from this self-idolatry, which is, which is the root cause ultimately really of all the ills in the world. Um, so, so beautiful, so powerful. I, I really um, appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate you so, so much and appreciate all the work that you've been doing. What, what are you working on currently? Uh, you have, you're writing so much and thinking about all these incredible things. What's your current book project? Okay, I'm uh, doing a book with Baker Academic. Um, God bless them, lovely people. Yes. Um, uh, I think at the moment, the title I, I like is um, uh, suggested by David Bentley Hart, actually. Uh, oh, amazing, yes. He's, um, he's doing a foreword for it for Oh, beautiful. Yes. Um, it's the conversation must begin again, Christian theology and science. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so, trying to rethink the whole thing from the ground up um, because what tends to happen in science and religion is science always comes first and religion has to measure itself against, against. science. Um, and so what this means is science is our first truth discourse in our academic culture. And the minute theology is a subsidiary to the first truth discourse, it's no longer Christian theology, whatever it is. Of course, of course. Very. So how, do you, how do you think what is Christianity, Christian theology, and then think about science is uh, what my book's about. 
Oh, that's amazing. That really just gave me chills because um, it's so important to, 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 to remember and to restate even that, right, that theology has to come first. Religion has to come first. God has to and is already first, right? We just pretend that he isn't. And uh, if science is put first, then anything if religion is measuring against itself against science, then it's not religion, it's not theology. And I mean, I can't also, I, I, I really feel that um, a lot of the sort of so-called technological advancements we have, I mean, just in the area, in the, in the realm of um, armaments, right? This incredible sort of machine of, and the military industrial complex, which is this insane behemoth. I can't help but feel that if we had a more traditionally religious understanding of things, theological understanding of things, we would not, we, I mean, whoever the we is in this, uh, would not be producing some of these insane technologies of death and torture and violence. Yes. Um, it's, we think of ourselves as more advanced in the past, and the 20th century was the century of mega death. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, what, what are the figures? The, the, they say that the 20th century alone saw more deaths as a result of war and, and violence than all the centuries put together previously. I mean, I, I mean, it sounds insane, but apparently that's true. And, and God knows what this century is going to shape up to be. And by the looks of things, it's not going to be any better may even be worse and so no absolutely we really need to restate our uh, uh, theological positions with uh, with confidence and stridence and uh, in conversation with with some of these uh, dominant voices which which are dominating the the headlines or the the, the limelight at the moment but uh, well, you know, thank you so much again for, for, for your incredible time and it's real pleasure and honor and very, very sort of uh, enlightening experience for me. And, uh, you know, well, all my prayers for your, uh, you know, your continued health and well-being and your family's well-being uh, and, and uh, success in an integral holistic sense uh, uh, in everything that you do. And, you know, please, uh, please continue to... Uh, sort of glean these sort of profound insights uh, and, uh, and 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 help us navigate these very um very sort of strange times and, and waters that we find ourselves on at the moment unprecedented right unprecedented is probably the most used word in the past year <laughs> these yeah. unprecedented times yeah. well wonderful thank you so much for talking with me oh, no. lovely Oh, no, it's a real, real pleasure, real uh, pleasure and honour. God bless you. And, and I look forward to uh, talking again uh, with you. And uh, again, you're genuinely benefiting from me. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you uh, an email uh, and, and I'd love to sort of, uh, you know, connect with you about some other things. So it'd be a real pleasure. Wonderful, Sam. Thank you very much. God bless you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah.